Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. If you have your Bibles today, turn to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, chapter 7 and 8. We're going to walk through a couple of chapters this morning. We're doing a a series uh, through the book of Nehemiah this summer. This is the the fifth part of that. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to date if you're kind of new to this. A long time ago in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they were bad, sinful, wicked. They had turned their backs on God, and they were overrun by the Babylonians and the Babylonians took the Hebrews back to Babylon. That hundred, you know, 80, 100,000 people, they lived in exile uh, for years and years and years under the, the secular, but, you know, the hand of, uh, of, of uh, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so the story of Nehemiah that we're reading through is written based on a promise from God 100 years earlier that he would raise up a man named King uh, Cyrus, He would free the Jewish exiles living in Babylon, restore them to their land, their temple, and their life in Jerusalem. So that's kind of the the narrative of the book of Nehemiah. Now, what we've talked about previously, and we'll see some of this come back this morning, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, he took over Babylon, and he started to release those Hebrews back into Israel, and he did it in three different waves at, at three different times. So the first one, he sent Zerubbabel and a group back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The second one, he sent Ezra and a group uh, to restore worship and religious life back to Israel. And then the third wave of people was Nehemiah uh, to rebuild the walls, the physical walls of Jerusalem. So this happened over many years. They did, this promise was fulfilled, but maybe a little differently than they had thought. So in previous weeks in this series, we've looked at Nehemiah's prayer at the very beginning and a call from God to lead the rebuilding of the perimeter walls of Jerusalem. And we saw Nehemiah arrive in Jerusalem and start the reconstruction of the walls. We saw how Nehemiah as a leader dealt with opposition, discouragement, gossip, and hurt as he was trying to uh, fulfill this task the Lord had given him. Uh, Bo preached last week. We saw Nehemiah's compassion for the hurting and the needy and how he was personally involved in helping those in need. And we saw Nehemiah's wise discernment concerning those who were opposing him. So as part of Bo's message last week, he mentioned that Nehemiah had started and completed the walls around Jerusalem, 52 days, something like that. So this morning, I'm going to start in Nehemiah chapter 7, but I'm only going to be there just uh, just for a moment because chapter 7 is basically a list or a census of those who had been living in Babylon who had returned back to Jerusalem when they were allowed. So it's just a list of names. It goes for about 40 verses, but there's Something I, something I want to, a point I want to make out of this, and I'm not going to read name by name. I want you to know that. But I am just going to, I want you to see a selection of kind of what is mentioned in uh, Nehemiah 7. So in verse 4, uh, <clears throat> the scripture says, the city was large and spacious. This is after the walls were built. But there were very few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So God put it into my heart, Nehemiah says, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration by family. I found the genealogical record of those who had uh, been the first to return. This is what I found. These are the people of the providence who, who came up from captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken away. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each into his own town. Okay, so now he starts to list. So they've rebuilt the walls, the interior of the city, you know, is kind of vacant. They're bringing everybody back in to fulfill, to live in these homes. But he gives this list. So uh, I think it's verse 8, the list of men of Israel, the descendants of Parash, uh, 
2,172. Shepatiah 3, 372. Era, 652. Moving down, he lists. Here's the men that came back. They lived in Babylon, 188. In verse 39, he lists the priest, the descendants of Jedidiah, 973. In this list, he lists the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Solomon, who came back in this uh, great exile. He mentions in verse 61, the following came up uh, from the towns of Telmela, but they could not show their families were descended from Israel. 642 people, he lists those. And at the very end of the chapter, the whole company numbered, verse 66, 42,360. So here's what I want to say when I was reading through that. It is the amazing historical accuracy of the Bible. They are naming names, naming families, giving specific numbers of different tribes where they, where they live. So this is what I want to say, and it's just an apologetic thought just for a moment, then I'm going to move to verse 8. Or chapter 8. When the Bible mentions a name, a city, a king, a genealogy, a census, a war, or a ruler, it attaches itself to the scrutiny of secular history. Okay? When the Bible mentions these things, it ties itself to the external verification of secular history. It ties its, uh, itself with its historical record and its spiritual content to the secular historical records as well. It is an unnecessary risk that the Bible takes throughout its writings, but it also adds to the legitimacy of its spiritual messages. Other religious texts, such as the Quran, other religious writings, they do not take this risk. They are spiritual in context and content, basically, but the Bible attaches itself continually from the very beginning to the genealogy of of, of Jesus' family in the New Testament. It ties itself to the historical record. So here's the thought. If the Bible is way off in its, its historical accuracy, then naturally people could conclude that if it's way that it's way off in its spiritual content as well. Or Maybe someone could look at this and reverse and conclude because of the historical accuracy and the attention to detail of the biblical historical record, then maybe some of its principles, concepts, and messaging would be true as well. All right? So very rarely is the historical record of the Bible in dispute. To me, it provides a framework where others could go, well, maybe there's something else inside the Bible, you know, besides historical record. Richard Averback said this, much of what we find in the Old Testament does enjoy some level of external archaeological and textual confirmation. For example... Near East, the ancient Near East documents confirmed the sequence and the dating of many of the kings of Israel and Judah as, as the Old Testament presents them. So it's just verification that throughout the scripture, the historical record is, you know, is correct. And then I would just say, if it's correct, there might be some other truth in there as well. So just in reading Nehemiah 7, just seeing the specificity of the names that were called, the numbers of the families, the, the, the attention to detail of that particular record. They even gave the exact number of the exiles that moved back. Maybe there's a larger message that we can, that we can see in that as well. All right, so at the end, uh, the very last verse of Nehemiah 7, and we'll go into Nehemiah 8 this morning. It said, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all of the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, 
and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud to them from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform, platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They bowed to the ground. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So here is the reemergence of Ezra. As I mentioned, you know, probably about the very first week of this, Ezra was given a mission to come back and to restore kind of the spiritual, you know, uh, the, the spiritual part of people's lives in, you know, uh, in Jerusalem. He had one who had been raised in Babylon under Babylonian thinking, Babylonian customs and culture. He had lived pure in Babylon, but now he is leading the spiritual reformation of Israel. And now we see he begins his public call to restore worship and religious practice to Israel. Now, what had he been doing? What had he been doing this entire time? Ezra had been in Jerusalem for 13 years before Nehemiah arrived. I told you there's a time, you know, they were releasing them to go back, these exiles at different times, and he had been there for 13 years. What had he been doing, all right? So when he, when he came initially, we see it in the book of Ezra, he didn't start having services initially. He didn't form a vision team. He didn't start, you know, having meetings at all. But Ezra had just been doing what you have to do sometimes when you want to see spiritual fruit, okay? He'd just been there a while. He had been prayerful. You can read this about Ezra's life. When God gives you a task and says, go do it, very rarely is there a quick turnaround. Very rarely is there a quick change. I hate saying that to you. I'll just be honest, okay? Very rarely, sometimes, you know, so he's there. And he begins praying. You can see that in Ezra 7. He was a man that prayed. And sometimes... It takes a little time when you put prayer seed in the ground and you water it with your tears. Sometimes it takes a little time for that seed to begin to germinate a little bit. Sometimes when you're prayerful, you know, and you're saying to the mountain, be thou removed, sometimes that that from, from prayer to fruit, it takes a little time. And he had been there for all of those years and not seeing the opportunity, not seeing the platform open that he, that he felt like that he would see, but he was, he was prayerful. He was faithful during those 13 years. He was working hard in dry seasons in which there was no fruit. He is praying. He is weeping, but nothing's moving on the horizon. He doesn't see God's hand in any way. He doesn't, he doesn't see the doors open. So, man, he's battling in this moment through those years. He's battling discouragement. He's battling, Lord, did I really, did I really hear your voice? I don't see see any fruit, but I want to say to you, if you are in that place today, and God's called you to a place, and you've been praying, I want to say, be faithful. You keep planting. You keep praying. You stay faithful to the task that God's given you. I promise there is a day that fruit is going to start budding through that hard pan soil that you've been working with. Don't be discouraged. Don't try to find another opportunity. If God's called you there, then there will be a day through your prayerful, faithful interaction that you'll start seeing fruit come from the ground. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. All right? I don't understand it. Sometimes you can be God's person at God's time, 
and have the faith that you need to, to, to have. And sometimes you don't see anything. You just need to be patient. But if you know that God's called you, if you're doing what God has asked you to do, you will be patient. There are things that are happening in the supernatural realm that you and I cannot see. We don't understand the spiritual warfare that's going on at some point. But you be patient. God is faithful. So he's been there for 13 years. Just being faithful, serving, what can I do? Why am I here? I'm supposed to be the one that's kind of leading this spiritual reformation. There's been nothing but political and uh, political chaos since I'm here. But now is his moment. Now is his moment. Look at verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord. This is kind of the first recorded public revival. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded. Amen? Amen. They bowed down. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So a couple of things about this. You know, there, there hadn't been a whole lot of people there. All these people had been living in Babylon you know, for, for decades, some had been born there. They had no idea about God, God's word. They had been raised in this secular culture. But when they gave the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord, it said all of the people came. How many? There would have been thousands of people who started to, you know, started to come just to hear the reading of the word of the Lord. They had been come out of Babylon and man, they've, they've seen this shiny temple and they've seen this, these walls and they were amazed because they saw the promise of God that had been fulfilled in their midst. And now that promise, 150 years old, now they are standing looking at a temple. They are looking at walls and now they are excited. What does God have next for me? And I want to say to you this morning until we stand complete and whole with the in the presence of God God's always got another promise around the corner when something's fulfilled when something's done then God is not through working on you working on us he's got something else in store they had seen this promise fulfilled but they just didn't go give high fives and go, hey, man, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. No, they were still, they were still hungry. So Nehemiah, he's finished the walls, the security walls, the perimeter walls. He's, he's finished building the wall, but yet there's something else that's missing. Something else is missing. He's looking over, you know, he's looking over Jerusalem You've got this shiny new temple, but it's empty on the inside. You've got these, these great walls that were designed for the physical safety of people. But there was still something missing. And he said, Ezra, you're the key. You're the key. What we're, what we're missing in this place now, they needed God in their midst. They needed the presence of God in the center. Everything else was just kind of a shell. It was just a physical building. But he said, Ezra, now is your moment. We need God in our midst. I want to say to you in several applications this morning, you may have a wonderful family you may live in a wonderful subdivision. You may have the home that's the envy of other people. You may have a very fruitful and comfortable 401k in your life. But I want you to know it is just exterior. You need God in the midst of all of that. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we are going to serve the Lord. That is not just a plaque that goes on the wall at homes. It is a declaration that we need need more in our home and family than just building and money. We need God's presence in the midst of our family. I want to say this morning, as a church, 
You can have wonderful facilities. You can have, you know, be on the cutting edge of, of technology and media, but without the presence of God in the midst, all you are is a social club. We need God in the midst of our churches, and we need God in the midst of this church here. I just want to say, you're just a little more than a social club. If that's all you've got is building and facilities. I want to say to our nation, today. You can have military power and you can have economic strength and you can be the envy of all the other countries in the world, but when you forget about God, your moral foundation will crumble and even though in the midst of your economic prowess, you can fall morally like any banana republic around the world for our nation. We need God in our midst. We need it. We need it. We have seen it happen before. Man, those people came. They were hungry. There were thousands of people that came and they wept and they got on their face and they knew that they needed to meet with God and we've seen that happen in our nation before. The secular historians' pens have written this. They call it the first great awakening between the 1730s and the 1740s. All of the Quakers and Anglicans and Lutherans and Baptists and Presbyterians, they all realized they were just form. They were just meeting. They were just going through the routine. But there were some of those that were hungry and said in the midst of, of, of our buildings, in the midst of our structure, we need the presence and the power of God and the secular historian pen begins to write about this move of God that happened across our country in the 1700s. But that's not the only time. They call it the second great awakening and it happened at the end of 1795 to 1835. Charles Finney began to preach. The Cane Ridge revival up in Kentucky started very small but at one point 20,000 and people were riding their horses and their and bringing their families because God was doing something across this nation and it lasted almost 30 35 years it was called the second great awakening we saw another move of God and it happened very close to us it was called the Brownsville revival it started June the 18th 1995 Steve Hill John Kilpatrick Lynn Dale Cooley, how many of you went to those services here? That's right. Four million people visited that revival over the course of the year. And I want you to know, man, it began to shake some things in believers' hearts. That Brownsville revival and, it, and the historian, secular historian's pen wrote about it earlier this year in 2023 at Asbury Seminary. The, all those students just went to chapel one day and students just began to worship and they began to pour their hearts out to God. And when chapel was over, there was a handful of students that just began to pray and seek God's face. And the president of, the, of Asbury wrote an email that said, hey, we're, there are a few students that, are, that worship is happening. You are welcome to join. And those that were hungry came in Hughes Chapel that day. And the Asbury revival was born out of young adults those that are supposed to be kind of skeptical and agnostic when it comes to the things of God. Over 50,000 people visited that revival. But it wasn't just that. Man, that revival touched the secular college campuses all across the United States. I want to say to you this morning, I believe in the power and the, the living power of God. And there's one thing that our nation needs and our church needs and it's not another politician it's not the rise of another political party folks we need a powerful move of God's spirit and God's presence across this nation and I believe that he can do it I believe that he can do it we need it we need it 
We've got a country that is broken and destitute, but we are so prideful. We point at the Dow Jones, and we point at the number of military soldiers that we have serving, but we are a broken nation that is desperate for a revival and a move of God. Can we just take a moment and ask Him for that this morning? Lord Jesus, Send your power upon us. Oh, Lord, we need your presence. God, we don't have enough of shiny buildings, political advertisements. Lord, we are a broken nation. Lord, as those people who were hungry came to hear the word of the Lord. God, we need your power and your presence. Pour your spirit out again upon our nation. Pour your spirit again upon the churches. Pour your spirit again upon our church. God, we need you today. We need you today, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Give him praise this morning. Give him praise. I'm not a big fan of our country right now. I think we're immoral and broken. But I tell you, I believe in God's power and God's spirit. I just think it can happen again. We've had a first great awakening, a third great awakening, and we've seen glimpses of that throughout history. But I just believe, man, I just believe God can sweep across this place one more time before he comes. People being touched by the, by the power of God, I believe it can happen. So he comes He starts to read the word of God. Israel experiences a spiritual awakening through the reading of scripture. He opens the book, verse 5, and he reads from daybreak until noon. He's reading the Bible from daybreak until noon. But people were showing up. These people were hungry. They had been in Babylon for 80 years. There was no Word, a very little word of the Lord. So just reading the law of God, man, they were, they were, you know, they, they were just so hungry for that. For four hours, they sat and listened to someone read the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, what would happen today if I said, hey, in the morning at six, I want you to be here and I'm going to just start reading the Bible and we're going to do it till noon. It would be me and the paid staff and part of the mega sports camp kids, okay? <clears throat> Listen, uh, I'm ashamed. Some, we're bored with the word of the Lord. It's not the good news anymore. It's the old news, okay? We, 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 we're, it's not part of our lives anymore. We don't, we don't read. We don't study. We have the word of the Lord in greater you know, potential to access through tablets and phones and, and books. But, but we, don't, we don't read anymore. They, part of this reformation came because of people's attentiveness to the word of the Lord. They were listening to the, to the, word, of the, the word of God. So they were excited about it. And listen to me. We are people of the spirit. We are spirit filled. We are Pentecostal as well. But we also have to be people of the Word. We have to be people of the Word as well. We believe in the power of God, but we also believe in the Word of God as well. And they are tied together. It was a problem that happened in the first century after the apostles died that, that people were having these powerful experiences, but they, it wasn't tied to the scripture. It was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a spiritual and mystical Christian practice and revelation that was untethered from the written scriptures. Okay, so people were having dreams and visions and revelations and they claimed Christ is their, you know, is their savior, but it was not anchored, you know, it was not anchored to the word of God. And I think if we're not careful Today in the spirit-filled world, we can head toward an era of Gnosticism again where we are heavy on interest, on gifts of the Spirit and miracles and words of the Lord's and, and prophecies that people give and we're following personalities and fads. We are light on doctrine. We are light on Scripture memorization. We are light on personal devotions. We have the potential to head back into a new Gnosticism a work, 
so to speak, of, of, of the Holy Spirit that's not connected to God's Word. And I want to say, any revelation that doesn't have its basis in God's Word is false prophecy. Any pastor, any prophet, whatever, if they don't give credence and adhere and submit their message to the Word of the Lord, man, they're a false prophet in this day. We've got to be people of the Spirit, but we also have to be people of the Word as well. The whole foundation, the whole foundation of what was happening, this spiritual reformation came from just the hearing of God's word. Some of you underestimate the power of God's word in your life. Some of you underestimate that. Listen, I've been studying and preaching this book a long time. Listen to me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read through it. My Bible in my office, almost every page has got some kind of note. Listen to me. But I still am amazed at the things that I learn out of God's Word. I'm still amazed. If you think it's just a reading of biblical history, then you are missing it. It is a living word that has the, has the potential and impact on your life to bring revelation. God speak to you and correct you and encourage you. I'm still amazed at the things that, that I read. And I've preached through almost every book. I've studied it. But I'm telling you, it's still living. When I started this series, I was going to do Nehemiah. I just did some reading out of Ezra just to, you know, to get the context. And I stumbled along uh, across the promise of Cyrus 130 years before. I mean, I just had church one day to think God gave that promise and that prophecy 150 years before it happened, before the, the situations lined up. I just sat in my office that day and thanked God for his promises. You know, I'm just saying to you just recently, man, that just came open to me. So I, I want to say to you, we need to be people of the Spirit. We need to lift our hands and pray. We need to be back baptized in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe in that God can speak, but in the same, with the same kind of passion that we are people of the Spirit, we have also got to be people of the Word as well. I feel like maybe in the Spirit-filled world, it's a little unbalanced, okay? If we're people of the Spirit, we're also people of the Word as well. Uh, the psalmist uh, said, my soul clings to the dust, Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your word. He said there's something that happens in the word of the Lord that can bring renewal. Sometimes we think it's just church services. Brent's got to be up here sweating. We got to have a worship team going. We got to have the altar folks down here. There's nothing wrong with that. We are people of the spirit, but we're also people of the word. Some of you think if I'm kind of weak and worn out, I got to go to a church service and I'm going not necessarily what you need is some time in the word of the Lord. He said, revive me, revive me through my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So I want to say to you this morning, if the Bible's not part of your regular life, read the word. Read the word. Regularly read the word. My suggestion to you is a minimum of four times a week. A minimum. If you can't do it every day, that's fine. If you can do it every day, that's great. But a minimum of four times a week, you sit down with your Bible and you read. Where do I start? If you don't have any idea, where do I start? You start with the book of Mark, okay? Or any of the Gospels, but Mark. You read the book of Acts right after that. You read James. You read Genesis. You read Proverbs. You read Ephesians. Those are great books when you are beginning in your faith. Don't go to Leviticus. Don't go to Revelation. That's some of you. You go straight to Revelation and you're like, who is this and what is that? You start here. And I want to say too, if you've been in the faith a long time, but you haven't had a personal devotional life, you hadn't read, I want to say the same to you. Start with Mark. Start with Acts. Start with James. Start with Genesis. Start back over. Reacquaint yourself to some basic principles of God's Word. So I want you, if you're, if you're here today and you don't, you're not regularly reading, 
I'm just going to ask you, would you make a mental commitment starting this afternoon, not tomorrow, okay? This afternoon on the Sabbath. Bible reading is better on the Sabbath, okay? Start today and go, hey, you know what? I'm going to read a chapter or two every day. I promise you it is life-changing. I promise you it's life-changing. All right. I got to go quickly, all right? Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord. The great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen and amen. They bowed down. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear, giving meaning so the people understood what was read. These people had a Babylonian mindset, but they are hearing the word of the Lord. So people were kind of out there trying to bring context and explanation to that. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. So this wasn't a sermon that the preacher tells a sad story at the end. They are, they are hearing and the Holy Spirit is doing something in their heart while they are reading. And there is a, an emotional response that did not come from preaching. It came from the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah says, now go enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks. Send something to those that have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Levites calm the people. Be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink. Send portions and to celebrate with great joy. Because now they understand the words that had been made known to them. So while they're reading, there's something that happens to people. Okay, And you see the evidence. You see the end result of this, but I want to walk through what was happening in that in that moment, and it comes from the word of the Lord, but it also comes from the spirit of the Lord. It is conviction, confession, and repentance. We see in this passage brokenness, weeping, conviction of sin, kind of this awareness that that they were not right before God. So I'm going to give you those three principles just really, really quick, all right? It's con- we call it conviction. We call it conviction. But actually, is it, it is an awareness of your sin and need for Jesus in your life. We, around, if you've been around, we call it conviction of sin, but it's really like this awareness. Like you're just living your life, all of a sudden you hear the word of the Lord, you read it, you hear a sermon, something that goes on, and you realize, whoa, 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 man, I got some stuff in my life that needs to be given to the Lord. I need, man, I, I need the Lord. This, so conviction, this awareness is a work of the word, but it's also a work, a work of the spirit as well. It is these nagging, persistent thoughts that go on in your mind about God. You used to never think about God, serving God, and now all of a sudden you're going, what, what is going on here? I'm saying to you, that is a work of the word and the Holy Spirit that is making you aware, number one, of your sin, but also of your need uh, uh, for, for your need for God. It awakens you. It's the gospel that's knocking on your door. It's an awareness of your life that you need rescue that does not come from a 12-step group or anything that money can buy. It is a spiritual rescue that can only come from Jesus. So this conviction, this awareness, it's I, I, where you're aware of your sin, you're, you're like, you, you feel uneasy in your heart, you feel this need for God. Some of you have been watching online for whatever reason that you don't know why. You've kind of been knocking on the door of a church and you're going, what's what's going on? It's not really in my heart. I'm telling you, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Conviction, awareness that the Lord's going and he's saying to you, take the next step. Open yourself up. And that would be confession. Confession. 
is a prayer for forgiveness and cleansing. It is inviting God to work in your life. So once you have this awareness of your sinfulness and this, and, you, and that you're away from God, confession is the prayer, you know, for forgiveness and cleansing and inviting God into your life. The psalmist David here, this was one of his prayers of confession. It said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my sins. Wash away my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. My sin is always before me. He's like, I, I acknowledge. I know what I've done wrong against you and only you have I sinned. And I've done evil what is in your sight. So the prayer of confession is the prayer, God, I need you. God, I need your help. It's not just a listing of the things that you have done wrong, but also it's the belief that in that prayer as well, that God can forgive you, that God can cleanse you, and whatever shortfalls and issues that you may have in your life, through that prayer, we believe that the Lord can help you to overcome. This is not a, this is not just a prayer, you know, it is a prayer between you and God, but it is a prayer too that can begin the change of your heart and your, and your uh, desires. And the last part of that is repentance. So there is conviction, the awareness that I need. God, this is what was happening to these people. Why are they crying and weeping with their faces to the ground? All right, because they, they realize these things. Repentance is the act of acknowledging your sin and your need for Jesus in your life. It is a determination to turn away from your sin and your old life. Now, some people have a problem with this. They, don't, they, they know they need the Lord. They don't mind praying the prayer. But repentance is, is when you go, now, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. Repentance is when I turn my back on my, on my old life. See, some people want both. They want their old life, and they want their new life as well. And it's going to be a life of frustration unless you walk through the door of repentance. You cannot please the Lord that's in your heart. You cannot please your flesh at the same time. So there are many people that come to the cross and they acknowledge the work that Jesus has done. But when it comes to repentance and doing away with your old life and turning only toward Jesus, some don't want to do that. They want to grasp both lives and continue to walk forward. And I'm just going to tell you, there will be a time that that your spiritual life will be choked out, okay? So I want to I say to you, and well, let, me, let, me, let me give you this quote, Tim, Tim Keller. He said, let me be the first to admit my fault and to repent quickly without grudging and without excuses and without bitterness, knowing that repentance is a path through grief, uh, through grief to greater joy. So what repentance does as well is the full snapshot at the awfulness of your life. You know, some, we, don't want to, we don't want to deal with brokenness. We don't want to deal with failure. We just kind of want to skip right through that. But, but repentance is when we acknowledge, man, I've been a terrible person. I've done some bad things in my life. And we want to skip, we want to, we want to skip over that. But I want to say you're never going to find the fullness of God's grace until you walk through the fullness of repentance and what that means. It is conviction. It is an awareness that we need God and we're broken in our heart. We need, uh, it's the prayer of confession, not just listing the things we've done wrong, but inviting God to work in our life. And it's also the prayer of repentance uh, as well. Lord, I'm turning away. I'm following you. Romans 10, Brent, you guys can come. It says, if you confess your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There are verbal declarations that you need to make along this process, but I'm telling you, it will be a blessing to you. It will be a blessing to you. Very last part as they come. The Levites calm the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Don't grieve. They were broken. They were, they were messed up. And, the, and then all the people went away and to eat and drink and to celebrate with great joy. Because now, now they had been, the, uh, the words had been made known to them. He, he said, hey, today is a day of sweet drinks. Today is a day of celebration. And, I, and we're going to do this at the end of the service today. We're going to give thanks to where God brought us. He didn't push them back into the Passover 
with bitter herbs and bitter drinks. He said, no, this is a day of celebration, of acknowledging what God has done for you. So this isn't a day of bitter drinks like Passover. This is a day for Chick-fil-A peach shake with whipped cream on top of it. This is not the day of bitter herbs. This is the day of fried chicken. This is the day of celebration. This is a day of acknowledgement of what God's done in your life. It's stop weeping, stop mourning. That work has been done. Celebrate and give thanks to God for what he's done in your life. And I want to say this morning at the end, we're going to celebrate this morning. We're going to thank God. Some of you, your life was in the clubs. That's all you ever knew. But the Lord took you out of that and he gave you a new life. Some of you, all that you've known was addictions and being strung out. But God's saved you and he's set you free. Some of you, all of your life was broken, destitute. But now God's given you a new life. And this morning, well, I'm not going to wait. Just, just take a moment. Can we just give him thanks? We're going to do it bigger at the end. We're going to do it bigger at the end. Would you just give him thanks? Where's he brought you from this morning? Where's he brought you from this morning? Amen. 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 We're, we're going to do that big time at the end. We're going to celebrate. Then Wit's going to take us all to get chicken and Chick-fil-A shakes at the end. All right? All right. But that celebration only happens in the first part of that. When you hear the word of the Lord and you realize, hey, man, there's some things in my life that I need. I need God. I need God. I got the shiny house. I got a great bank account. But man, in my home and family, there's something missing. There's something missing in my own life. I got the job that I want. I got the degree that I want. My, my bank account is the envy, but yet, why am I hurting and lonely and broken on the inside? How come? With everything that I've got going for me, there's no joy in my life. There is no fulfillment and there's no peace. Because you need to take that next step. You need to make Jesus your Lord. You need to make Jesus your Lord. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And across the building, across the building, I want to kind of walk you through that process this morning. Why were those people hearing and weeping with their faces to the ground? Because God did a work in their midst. And if you're here this morning, and I want you to be open to this moment, I frame it this way. If you'll do three things then God will do three things. If you'll admit that you need God in your life, if you'll believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and wants to forgive you, if you'll believe that He was resurrected from the dead, if you'll confess, we talked about that just a moment, that you need God. You need God. I, Lord, I've been doing this on my own. I need you. If you'll do those three things, then God will do three things for you. He'll forgive your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how big. It doesn't matter if, you're, if your name is on the legal register of Leon County or the state of Florida, the federal government. It doesn't matter. He wipes away our sin. They're never again remembered against us. He'll give you a new life. He gives beauty for ashes. He'll start over with you. He will rebuild what your actions and activities have kind of taken away. He will give you a new life. And He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you eternal life. We're all going to live forever somewhere. But you're going to live in the presence of Jesus. You will never lay your head on the pillow again and think if something happens to me, where will I spend eternity? You are covered by that promise. If you'll do those three things... He will do those three things, okay? Now, they're going to put a prayer on the, on the screen. They're going to put a prayer on the screen. And I want you to kind of open your eyes. And as a church, we're just going to kind of read this prayer together. Now, some of you, you've read this prayer. You know, you prayed this years ago. And you may just do it as a recommitment. But some of you this morning, this is your moment. This is your God moment. This is a moment that's kind of aligning things up. Why am I here? Why, why, why have these thoughts been in my life? It's God saying to you, take this next step of faith. Follow Jesus. Okay? So I want us to kind of all just kind of 
read that prayer together. But that's you. We're not just reading it. To that's you. It's internalized and it's in your heart. It says, Father, I know that I've broken your laws and my sins have separated me from you. I'm truly sorry and want to turn from my sinful past towards you. Please forgive me. I believe your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins and was resurrected from the dead and is alive and he hears my prayer. I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that and you were sincere in your heart, This morning, there's rejoicing in heaven. This morning, there is something that's happening in your heart. God is wiping away your sin. He is cleansing you. He is doing some work in your heart this morning. And now, you're not just a visitor to Generations Church. You are part of our spiritual family this morning. And we welcome you. Would you stand this morning? Would you stand this morning? All across the building, would you just give him praise this morning, especially if you prayed that prayer today? Would you give him praise? Lord, for those online, for those that that are here this morning, Lord, that, that prayed, God, I pray that you would do a work in their heart. New sons and daughters born into the kingdom of God this morning. Lord, you're dealing with people, Lord, today. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer at the end of service, I want you to come see me. Or maybe you're just starting a faith journey. You're, you're going, man, what, what is this going on? Why do I have all these God thoughts? I would love to have that conversation with you. i got some material I want to give you. I want to I I help you start in that, in that new life. But right now, we got a little celebration right now. Right now, we're going to take a moment. Now, some of you, you go to the ball game, and you act crazy, and that's fine, all right? You get in the clubs, you scream, you do all that you want to do, okay? That's whatever. But this morning, we're going to celebrate because he has brought me from death to life. He has given me beauty for ashes. When my life was destitute and broken, and everyone turned their back on me, It was the hand, the nail-scarred hand of Jesus that was extended to me. And I don't have much that I can give him this morning, but I can give him my thanks. He said, Nehemiah, this is not a day of weeping and mourning. This is a day of celebration. Eat great foods. Eat sweet drinks. We're going to do that at the lemonade stand at the end of service. Right now, we're going to worship But we're going to take a moment and I want you to celebrate. And as we sing, I want you to think about where God has brought you this morning. Let's rejoice and let's celebrate this morning. Let's do it.
across the building. We've been, we're going to do that bridge in just a second. Right where you're at across the building, I want you to raise your hands. I want you to give him thanks for where he's brought you from. Your own words, your own testimony to the Lord where he's brought you from today. We're giving thanks. It's not a day of heaviness. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of celebration. Oh, God, we celebrate today the goodness and the grace of God. We give you thanks, Lord, from where you brought us from. Lord, beauty for ashes this morning. Lord, we give you praise. We give you praise. We celebrate the goodness of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord. We give you praise today. We give you praise today. Brand, do that bridge again. Come on, sing it. Sing it. This was our story. This was our story. It's our old life. Our old life. You called me a and repentance it's heavy but he said I want you to be there this is a joyous thing that happens and we celebrate today one more time can you give him thanks Lord thank you for what you've done in our heart thank you for your grace thank you for where you brought us from you didn't leave us in a mess you didn't leave us in a mess Lord you brought us to where we are today Lord some of us you're working through our mess you're not through faithful as he's called you he's also going to complete it there's a com- completing work that the Lord's doing Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Well, listen, give the Lord a shout of praise. We love you this morning, Lord. We love you. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.